Hi, everyone. Before we begin, I wanted to say a big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by clicking subscribe and leaving a five-star review. Every rating and review helps this podcast to grow, meaning more people can discover these stories and find hope along their own journey. If you'd like to check out this week's Behind the Smile photo, head to ashbutters.com where you'll find all of the episode show notes. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can reach out to me directly through the website. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, Join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today on the show, we have Brad McLeod. Brad is the genius behind one of Instagram's most popular sobriety accounts, Sober Motivation, which to date has amassed over 150,000 followers. He's also the host of his own podcast, which goes by the same name. Brad made the decision to get sober on the 11th of January, 2010, and has turned his focus to inspiring other people to step into recovery. So without any further delay, dialing in from Toronto... I'd love to introduce Brad onto the show. Brad, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. This is incredible. I'm so excited that we've finally been able to connect. We've been chatting a bit on the gram back and forth and um, yeah, now we're here. It's really, really exciting. Yeah, for sure. How's your day been today? Because it's it's nine or 10 o'clock over there, isn't it? Yes, nine nine p.m. Yeah, day's been good, been busy. It's been good, and uh, I can't complain. I love that. I love hearing that. Well, look, before we dive into the photo that I've asked you to bring in today, I'd love for our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So can we kick it off with you telling us a bit about yourself? Maybe we'll start with where are you from, what does an average day look like, and what do you do for fun? Yeah, well, I'm actually back to where I was born. it's a Kitchener out a little bit outside of Toronto. Yeah, that's where I'm from. Um, I grew up in the U.S. though, mostly, most of my life. Well, not most of it now, but it was like 17 years. Um, an average day looks like for me, I've got three kids. So it wakes up, we wake up and it's it, uh, the party started right away. So we, we get that going. Um, I usually take my five-year-old to school every day and the other two stay home for now. And then I get to work. So I do a few things, sort of a digital marketing space. I also work for a company called Sober Buddy. And I do a lot of freelance projects. I also do the podcast. So that's pretty much what I do for the day. And then after that, we we have supper. And we do the nighttime routines, bedtime. And then I usually uh, will work on something, whether it be my podcast editing or, or podcasting or just connecting with people. Or I also host uh, peer support groups. 
So that's like an average. Wow. (laughs) You are one busy man. It's incredible that you're able to fit so much into one day. Yeah. Surprises me too. (laughs) And for fun, I would say that's a really good question. Now it's winter here, right? So a lot of the stuff I do is a lot of outdoor stuff in the summertime. So I've got a couple of kayaks. I enjoy fishing. Um, I enjoy exploring trails with the kids, going for walks. It seems like I hit this point in my life where one of the highlights of the day sometimes is just going for a walk. Um, And I really enjoy that stuff. The summertime, I really enjoy the beach. I really enjoy. I'm just an outdoors person. I'll literally spend the entire day outside. I hate Mm. to be inside uh, during the summertime. The wintertime is more ice skating. Um, I play a little video games. I watch hockey religiously. I watch every single uh, Carolina Hurricanes hockey game. And um, that's what I do. Tell me, Brad, is this love that you have for the outdoors, is that something that you've always had in you or is it something that you explored more once you got sober? Yeah. Oh, good question. No, the, my love for the outdoors came, and we'll probably touch into this, but I went to a re, uh, wilderness sort of outdoor treatment program when I was 17. It was a one-year program, and we lived in a cabin in the woods. There was a bunch of different um, communities, different clans, we called them at the time, um, that we lived in. And so we spent all day, every day outside, and that's where I really like connected with. I find a lot of peace there, a lot of mm. understanding, and I just really feel like it just brings out the best in me. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, Brad, you've got a huge story and I'm really looking forward to diving into that today. But to begin, I would love to start with your photo. Now, Brad, I've asked you to bring in a photo from a time in your life where you were hiding behind a smile. So your insides didn't match your outsides and you were really struggling. Presenting one version of yourself to the world, but the reality was the insides felt very, very different. Now, I'd love for you to share to our audience what you replied in the message I sent you when we were talking about the photo. Yeah, of course. You know, even when I think of that question, I could, I wouldn't have a photo beyond, you know, being a toddler to where I actually, you know, like my whole life growing up, I never felt much happiness. I did joy. I can't remember it anyway if I did, but I, I I remember this one photo that I'm thinking of, and I don't have a photo because when I started my life over, you know, 13, 13 or so years ago, I didn't have anything. I started my life over with the with the clothing that was given to me from the jail that I was leaving in a box of letters and mail and stuff that you kind of gather and collect over time while you're in jail. That's all I had. Um mm have any photo books or anything like that and i did have a facebook with some old pictures but i shut the facebook down a while back but i do remember this one picture i remember this one picture i had on there was my buddy and he was holding me up we were at a concert i was smiling ear to ear and we're at this concert and i was so messed up i couldn't even stand up on my my own and i thought i was just having the time of my life and maybe i was at that time that was before things necessarily got out of hand but even when i look back there was just so much internal turmoil going on that I didn't even know how to process. Mm. Mm. It's crazy, isn't it, how we can be moving through life and thinking that things are okay or we just become so used to feeling a certain way 
that we become disconnected from our ability to actually experience life for all that it has to offer. It's almost like I always describe it as being, it was Groundhog Day for me. Was, did you have a similar experience? Yeah. I mean, I definitely went through, you know, times where I don't remember much and where I was just going through the motions and yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. Brad, what was your childhood like then? You mentioned that you can't really recall any happy memories or times where you would have been smiling as a child. Were there any defining moments that you can think of that shaped you into your adulthood? Yeah, I mean, my mom was 17 when she had twins, so I have a twin brother. And um, I mean, I think that offered its own amount of challenges. We were living with my grandparents at the time. Everybody in the mix was young, right? So, you know, to do, of course, they did their best they could, but, you know, would, would things have been different if they were older? Maybe, I don't know. But what really kind of changed is when I was about six or seven, my mom got a job down in Texas. So we moved from there. From living with my grandparents and my grandmother did a lot of stuff for us, right? Like your grandparents, they spoil you, you know? So when you live, when you grow yeah. up like that, being spoiled all the time, and then you have a single mom and you move to another country, you know, a, you know, a long ways away with just now her looking after my brother and I, you know, I think she did, she definitely did the best she could, but I think there was probably some trauma and stuff that happened there just from the, the shift, the change not knowing anybody, mm. new school, new culture, new everything. And, you know, from that point on, I can remember that I just, I struggled to really fit in and find my place in the world. I was mm. always felt like I was on the outside. Like I was an out, mm. I, you know, I didn't have any success in school. I never passed a test in my life. I never studied. I had ADHD. I was seeing therapists from, you know, earliest I can remember. I was seeing mm. psychiatrists. Um, I was going to learning centers, you know, a lot of interventions, like a lot of, mm. uh, you know, my mom was definitely trying to help me, but I never accepted any help in my life. Um, it was an interesting time. And was your brother, do you remember if he was having a similar experience to you at that time? Um, I mean, I'm sure it was similar. I don't know like what level sort of it was on. Um, compared to where I was at, but I mean, he, he had, he was easier to fit in and, you know, stuff. I just struggled to, you know, find, uh, people to connect with and maintain relationships. And, you know, I, I just didn't feel worthy of having any of that stuff either. You know, so it was one yeah. thing to, to not have the skills to develop them, but then it was a whole nother thing to not even feel like that was something that was possible for me. Yeah. And so when you moved to America, I imagine your mom would have been working a lot. So was there a lot of time that your brother and yourself were home alone? Uh, I wouldn't say we were home alone. We probably had babysitters and stuff. Yeah, we were mm -hmm. probably like seven, eight or something like that. Yeah, there'd probably be babysitters and, you know, that type of, yeah. that type of stuff. But yeah, she did work. You know, from what I can remember, I had a terrible memory for for my childhood, but yeah, she was working. And do you think part of that would be a level of dissociation that you've, that's been developed? Could be. <laughs> yeah. Not sure. Were there much alcohol or drugs around the family home? No, 
I can't even remember. And then my mom married my stepdad too. That's in the picture. And then we moved, you know, as I got older, we moved to North Carolina and, you know, bought a house. And I have, an, I have another, I have a younger, um, another brother too, who's younger. Um, and no, but my, I never saw my folks drink or drug. No, they never did any drugs, maybe smoke dope, but not that I know of or, or even drink. No. Mm. So then when did you start experimenting with drugs and alcohol? Yeah. So when I did, it wasn't until I was eight, 18 or so, but I went to a little bit back before that to kind of make a, you know, make this all maybe make a little bit more sense. When I was in high school, I got arrested. I was 16 and I got arrested of trying to fit in, trying to be one of the boys, trying to be one of the, trying to fit in with everybody. And then we got arrested. Um, and I was getting in a lot of trouble. I was skipping school, defiant, not following the house rules, failing school. And then I got arrested too. So, and, and then I was really depressed, really, really depressed in school. And I had talked about committing suicide to, mm-hmm. to a counselor at the school. And this was the second time I'd already been to the, the adolescent psychiatric unit one time at the hospital. And this was the second time. So it was taken more serious. They brought in a police officer. They brought me to the hospital there. And then you get put on a, you don't hold, you can't leave and stuff. But this time it was different. It was for, it was like for seven days. And what happened at the end of it is my parents were, people were coming in and doing interviews with me to see if I would be a fit or be interested in their treatment programs, you know, for just basically being out of control. And I turned mm-hmm. everything down. One program, one program was like three months and I just turned it all down. I just wasn't interested in getting any help. And I wanted to get back to my high school life. Like I thought it was a great mm-hmm. life and I wanted to get back to it. So my parents kind of stepped up the game a little bit. I, they hired a private security company, transport company. They came into the unit. They picked me up. They brought me to a treatment center in uh, right outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. And um, that would be 12 months. I would stay there for 12 months. So you weren't allowed to leave this program or anything. Your parents would sign you over, you know, sign the paperwork. Like you're, you're there. Um, and this program changed my life. Like I really came out of my shell. I, you know, I mean, it was a whole 12 months. Obviously there's a huge story. There's a lot of stuff there, but it changed my yeah. life. And before that, before that point, I never did any, any drinking drugs, nothing. Um, I was out of control. And I, I feel like when I look back, I was, I was destined to find something to solve what was going on with me. Um, it was only a matter of time. And my parents did really well to intervene early on to try mm. to maybe knock me off course. But when I look back, I'm like, I don't know. It was, I was just headed right towards it. And um, mm. so I got out of the program. I got out of the program. Um, things were well, eh? I got my own apartment. I graduated high school at the program. I was going, I applied for college. I got accepted to college. That was never anything I was going to do. I ne- like I said before, I never passed a test before. We went to school while we were at this program. I did well. I did it by myself and, you know, we did like the, it wasn't like a classroom and that was always a struggle for me. So this was, was better. And I went, um, I was in college. I got my first job. Um, no, my second job, my first job was Burger King. I got this other job, um, flipping burgers at this place called Red Robin. And, um, I started dating this, this, uh, you know, beautiful young lady. Things were great. Like my life was great. And, um, I started the slide. I started to, you know, think for my mental health, for my self-care, for everything I was doing, my psychiatrist visits, my therapy visits, um, my groups I was going to, I thought I was too, I was above all of it. You know, so mm-hmm. I started making, 
you know, poor decisions one after the other to where I didn't need the medication and I didn't need mm. this and I didn't need that and I didn't need to do that anymore. And, um, you know, a couple of months later, I found myself with the same mindset I, I was before I went into it, you know, that I had something figured out. And, and that's when drugs were presented. I was at a party. I was at a party and um, we were we were drinking and we were we were partying and um, buddy there. He, we had some cocaine with him. So he said he was driving. And I'm like, dude, I think we had too much to drive. He's like, no, you do the cocaine sobers you up. You know, we can get to the we can get back to your place. So, all right. Well, let me try a little bit too. And um, it wasn't like the movies though. I wasn't just like hooked and I spent all my money and my life went down the drain right away. That wasn't that wasn't the case. It was a slow roll. But for once in my life, maybe not for once, but for once without working towards it, like the other things helped therapy, medication, all that stuff. I felt worthy. I felt like I belonged. But that was hard work. For once in my life, I found a solution to myself. By just doing some one little bang, and I was like, mm. "You're not that ba- you're not that bad of a guy," and that's where it all started. It's that instant gratification, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I can totally relate to that. And I love what you said about how you described that really slow tapering off of all of the, the different tools that you had in place that was supporting you at that time. I think that's really relatable for somebody who's listening that is in recovery and who does the drill every single day. And I, when I talk about the drill, I mean things like getting up, having a morning practice. If you're part of 12 step, getting to a meeting, like there's so many different things that we do every day. And it doesn't matter how long you've been sober for. If you stop doing the things, then our minds can very quickly start to slip again. So true. Has that been your experience in your 13 years of sobriety? If what, I stopped doing the small stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sobriety to me in a nutshell is is what I do when nobody's watching. You know, that's mm. to what what keeps me going on this track is because, you know, manipulation, sneaking around, lying, that type of stuff was just how I rolled every day. I had to be like that to survive how I was living. Mm. So for me, sobriety is simply – you know, just doing the little things in between, doing the little things right. You know, we, we've heard all, mm. we've probably all uh, heard that goal cast, just make your bed every day. Mm. It's little things like that that I picked up along the way throughout the treatment program um, that I went to, throughout every program I went to, throughout everything mm. I did. You know, there was tons of interventions before. You know, this stuff actually worked. I mean, my, my grandfather, he's passed now, but he used to call me the million dollar man. And um, what he was referring to is the amount of money um, that my parents had spent to fix me was mm. there was a lot of interventions. Um, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. I couldn't agree more. And we'll, we'll definitely talk about some of those tools later down in the show. So let's go back for a moment. You've tried cocaine at this party. What happened next? Nothing. <laughs> I wasn't interested in cocaine. <laughs> It's actually really weird though, because I, I lived with a couple of guys at the time and um, they were heavy and they were ha- heavy pot smokers. Other than that, they were, they were pretty good dudes. We used to party, drink some, you know, drink some beers and all that stuff. Um, but you know, they, uh, my PlayStation went missing a couple of days later, right? They knew I had did this cocaine and a couple of days later I was in the shower and I came out of the shower, my play brand new PlayStation's gone. 
And these guys obviously took it and sold it, but they like were convinced that I was just hooked on the cocaine that bad. All of a sudden, within two days, I'm selling a PlayStation. Um, and it just wasn't the reality. I just, you know, for me too, I wasn't connected to like people who did drugs and all this type of stuff. What happened later down the road is we were, I had a po- I would have a poker night over at my place. And at a poker night, we had this one guy who worked at the restaurant, right? Everything stems from the restaurant. If you ever worked in a restaurant, you already know that this stuff is just everywhere and it'll get you. So we had this one guy, a little bit of a shady character. And he came over and he had this pill bottle. So I said, oh, what the heck's all that stuff? Like, what are you, what, what are you taking? You know, are you taking medication right now or something? This is strange. I was naive, so naive. I had no idea about this stuff. He said, oh, no, these are, you know, these are whatever. I said, well, what does it cost to get one of those? He's like, oh, five bucks. I said, all right, well, here's five bucks. And I took that and it changed my life. I took the, the, the it was hydrocodone or something at the time. And, um, okay. Yeah. What did that do for you? Everything, everything I was looking for, for the last 18 years of my life, I found for five bucks. I felt like comfortable in my own skin for the first time. In my life. Mm. Long and short, that's what it did. You know, I felt like it was just a warm, it gives you this warm feeling. You just get this warm mm. feeling of, um, you know, things aren't bad. Things are good. It's pain medication. It kills the pain. And I was in a lot of pain, not physical pain. Mm. I was in a lot of emotional pain. And I was still, mm. you know, I cut off all the other stuff I was doing and I wasn't doing anything. So I was really back to where I was before all of it without maintenance. Without maintaining mm. your stuff, you'll 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 slide back to where you were before you started it all. At least I did, mm. and I was mm. lost again. You know, putting on a smile and trying to fit in and try to you know do what I what I thought I could do. But the the, the reality is, me, I can't keep it together. I hear other people's mm. stories, and they were rocking and rolling for ten, fifteen, twenty years. I, I, me, I hit the ground running, and I went a hundred and. 50 miles an hour from day one after I got that first pill from that guy. I didn't know where to get more, but I loved it so much. I started to figure it out and I was, I knew this person and I started to research it a little bit. And I said, this is how people get them. They got uh, surgeries and stuff like that. Cause I didn't know about buying it on the street. I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, mm. I found this person and it. Their, their parent, one of their parents had a bunch of surgeries and I went to work See if there was any pills. And and I ended up with a whole shoebox of these medications. Wow. Yeah. That sounds the the fact that in many ways it's so accessible and it's so cheap, it just makes it so, so dangerous, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean it was cheap then, but like it wasn't cheap towards the end. Because one wouldn't do it anymore. Towards the end I would need thirty. And then I would throw, I would, I would, you know, puke up the 30 and need another 30. Wow. The five bucks was cheap, but the tolerance came with it, right? I built up a big tolerance. Yeah. So I got the shoe box though, because this all happened, this all happened pretty quick. I, and I'm still naive. I have no idea what I'm doing, right? This is at the time, you know, Big Pharma was pushing out these pills big time. And the marketing a little bit before I got introduced was that these are non-addictive. These are okay. You know, so nobody was really talking about it being a big thing. So I got the shoe box and, you know, long story short, I was just eating them whenever I, 
whenever it wore off, I'd have another one. And it started off with three a day, four a day, right? I wanted to follow the, follow the bottle a little bit. You know, I want to follow what the rules say on the bottle a little bit, even though like I didn't have the surgery that these were for. I figured these are from a doctor. Like I'm good to go. Even if I double the dose, we've all taken two Tylenol when it says take one and I'm still here. So I figured, you know, same deal. So, you know, and that went on for like a month. I had that many Hmm. went on for a month. What I didn't know is that when you run out of these pills, you go into extreme withdrawal. So I ran out of the pills. I don't know any street dealers or connections or any of my friends. Nobody I knew was doing this stuff. I mean, they were just college mm. party type guys. Mm. And they run out. And that's, um, you know, I'd say that that's probably when, you know, things went downhill after that pretty quick. Yeah. What you're describing to me reminds me of this documentary that I watched recently, and I'm sure that it would have been really big in the US and it was that story of where they took on Big Pharma around this time that you're talking about where these pills were coming out and the impact that it had across the country and worldwide even is just, it's terrifying to see that people were taking this medication. The label was saying that it was non-addictive and it went on for years. Yeah. Now I know that a lot of people that weren't able to get the medication because they'd run out, they couldn't get any more scripts, they couldn't buy it off the street anymore, they started to turn to things like fentanyl or heroin. Was that something that happened for you? Yeah, same story. Not fentanyl, that wasn't out then, but heroin was part of it. I mean, once it, once you couldn't get the pills anymore, yeah, it was, you, you switched over to heroin because it was readily, like, readily available. And that, that was mm. definitely the same journey that, that I took that anybody I... I connected with took it. I mean, when we all started out, we all said the same thing. Nah, yeah. If it comes to that, I'll just shut her down. I'll just quit. Mm-hmm. When you get hooked up in that cycle, you can't just quit. Like you can't just mm-hmm. stop. Um, you can't just stop doing it. Mm-hmm. When you made the decision to try heroin, had you before that point, tried to get clean or go to rehab or was it just this you were the steam train was rolling and you were going to keep going at that point yeah no i was going to keep going yeah i mean it was one buddy i used to run with and um i used to get the pills from him too because i could get some you know street you know some of the stuff you could get but then he was out that's how it all you'll always hear that story buddy who you went to get the stuff from he was out but he had something else you know, and um, mm. you're desperate. You're not thinking about, you know, what's going to happen or what it did. You, in your mind, you're just thinking this is a one-time, you know, thing. Uh, tomorrow, I'll figure out another plan about other stuff. But yeah, definitely took the took the transition. And in terms of a timeline, you said that it was quick. Can you remember from when you first took the pill at the restaurant to when you started? IV drug use, how, how many days, weeks, months, years that was? That was months. Wow. Yeah. In the months sometime. Um, and I mean, I was Mm. doing other stuff too. I wasn't just, um, I wasn't just completely into heroin. I was doing ecstasy. I was doing cocaine, a lot of cocaine too. Hmm. Um, yeah, I was just burning my life to the ground really. Were you able to maintain a job at this time? What was going on with your with your work life? 
No, I was unemployable. I had jobs, but I couldn't hold jobs. I I couldn't mm -hmm. stop using cocaine for one. So the the cocaine you'd have to use like I don't know every twenty minutes or something, and um, a lot of the jobs would pick up on it. So they would they would they would do a meeting, right? A lot of the jobs they wouldn't fire you that day because they wanted you to keep doing the job. They'd always call me mm -hmm. the next morning. Hey, we need you to come in an hour early. And I was like, yeah, I already know where this is going. You know, I won't be there. Now, I mean, I couldn't keep a job. I couldn't. No, I mean, it was a disaster in that sense. I lost that apartment too. my first apartment too. I got evicted from. I started losing stuff pretty quick. I lost a car. Mm -hmm. My parents, my parents have spent $12,000 on a car for me. And I lost that in a couple months too. Everything, everything I had. I didn't really have much to start out with, but what little I did have, um, material, material wise, it was dwindled down to your necessities: a flip phone and a pair of sneakers mm. and some clothes. Yeah. So, you, were you were homeless at that time then? No, I wasn't homeless. No, I, I moved back in with my parents for a little bit, and then I got arrested again. Um, buddy of mine, buddy, buddy of mine, and I got caught breaking into a car. Guilty by association. Mm -hmm. I learned this lesson the hard way. I mean, I still was guilty, not reducing my accountability for it, but I didn't actually break into the car. I was just there. But that's what I learned. Um, it's, it's the same thing. You don't actually have to do it. As long as you're there, you're guilty. Um, and that's when I was eight. That's when I was like 18 or 19. And um, I was living at my parents' place. And me and my buddy got caught that night. So we, we, we ran, we saw the blue light. It was three in the morning. Guy was walking his dog. He's like, Hey, and you know, as soon as he said that, I saw the blue lights, Man, you know, the two cop cars flying. And I told my buddy, let's go, let's run. You know? So we ran and we were in a small town, Holly Springs, North Carolina. It's a small town, one road in one road out. We got to this pool. They have all these pool houses there. And at the pool houses, they have phones. I don't even know if we had a cell phone then, but they have phones. So for like emergencies, if you need somebody having trouble in the pool, you can use the phone. Called the girl I was dating at the time. Say, can you come and pick us up? We're leaving this little town and the lights go on. Bang. Caught red-handed. There's nobody else out at three in the morning. We're, we're finished, right? So we get, we get booked into jail that night. Charged with this. Is, these are felonies. It's serious there in the U.S. It's serious. Here in Canada, if you go into somebody's car, like you're not going to prison probably. There, you'll go to prison. Um, it's serious mm. business. And so so we got bailed out. 700 bucks. They send you out. You got a court date. Went back home to my parents' place. The next day, next morning, I'm sleeping because it was a long day, right? We were in the jail, and we were up till 3. It was a long day. So bang, 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 bang. You know, 7 in the morning. My younger brother's getting ready for school. My stepdad's there. He's like, who in the fuck is at the house? About 240-pound police officer comes in. Yeah, need Brad. He got, got a arrest warrant for, for Brad. And um, my stepdad didn't know I was arrested the night before. After that, my parents said, no, you can't live here anymore. So I got booked back into jail for the same deal. Same thing again. I don't know. They said they placed another charge. Booked back into jail, bail out again, and now I had to covertly live at my girlfriend's parents place without them knowing like we didn't tell them but i'm pretty sure they knew like how do you not know i mean i wasn't like walking out when they were around like they didn't necessarily see me but still i'm like i think they know but 
and I lived there yeah. for a bit. So the shame was building. Wow. That just sounds so unmanageable at the time, but I can just understand how that cycle started and how hard it would have been to break once you were in it. How was, how was the using impacting your relationship? So you mentioned, obviously, I imagine the relationship with your, your family, your biological family would have started to fracture as a result of these behaviors and these arrests, but you, you also had a girlfriend at the time. How was that all playing out? Yeah. I mean, the girlfriend at the time was more of a codependent type relationship. It was good. She was great. She never was into any stuff. Um, but I mean, enabled out of the kindness of her heart, enabled the behaviors and this stuff to kind of continue on. Um, Can you stop there for a moment? I want to ask a question, Brad. What do you mean for our listeners who don't understand this concept of enabling? What sort of things was she allowing you to do that actually supported your using? And how do you think she could have persuaded you, if at all, to get clean? Yeah, I can answer the last one there first. She probably couldn't have persuaded me to, mm. but I mean, just kind of, I mean, not really bringing it up, but I don't know that she really knew that it was a big of a problem. You know, we were really in the dark with these prescription pills and stuff and the heroin and stuff. And it's not like I broadcasted what I was doing or stuff. I would kind of go out and hang out with other people and she wouldn't necessarily mm. go. Um, but I mean, you know, mm -hmm. making a place that really was comfortable taking me into her house, her parents, you know, let me use a car, um, you know, different things. But I think it's got to be different for, you know, every situation. You know, they weren't necessarily giving me cash, but they did pay for the lawyer. Um, you know, some of that stuff, you know, maybe different. I think it depends, too, where somebody's at in their life. You know, if mm -hmm. somebody's maybe, you know, a lot older than I was, like, you know, kind of taking care of, well, you know, they were kind of taking care of me like a baby. Um, you know, probably wasn't the most helpful thing. And that's what my parents were done with. You know, my parents were like this, you know, we're not, they don't want to be part of it. You know, plus two, like when the cops came and my younger brother's getting ready for school, like what kind of, you know what I mean? What kind of example is this, right? Ridiculous. Yeah. I suppose they need to protect him as well. Right. Yeah. So tell me, when did you reach rock bottom, if you did at all? Yeah, I bounced off a few times. Um, <laughs> I mean, I had a lot of – I definitely had a lot of rock bottom things. You know, I mean, external stuff. I mean, I lost everything basically, um, you know, myself in the process. My big part of rock bottom was more of an emotional one, more of a one of like mm. I didn't want to live anymore. Another rock bottom was the relationships. I didn't have any. You know, I just had, you know, a few people that were close and a few people that I was close with, but most people were just acquaintances that we were just not good for each other. On our own, we were okay. But when we got together, it just was bad news. We weren't up to much good. Um, I mean, some people would say like jail's rock bottom. I got put on felony probation, um, you know, for that. I, I somehow convinced them that I was stealing for to pay down credit card debt, which is when I was 16 – and I got put on probation and I wasn't doing drugs. I had to do urine samples every two weeks. But when mm. I was 18 and I was doing drugs, I didn't have to do any of that. I just had to pay the probation officer like 270 bucks a month 
which was a but that was really stressful for me because I barely could even come up with that. And there were some months where I didn't have it because I was you know spending it elsewhere. Um, mm. you know, some people might say that's rock bottom. Some people might say get kicked out of your parents' house, rock bottom. Losing your apartment it might be a rock bottom. Yeah, you know, having no job might be a rock bottom. Losing your fifth job in a row might be a rock bottom. Getting kicked, I got kicked mm. out of college too. Um, I was put on academic probation, and then I I couldn't even fall back. Everything for me is probation. Everybody wants to put me on probation to rehabilitate me, but <laughs> it didn't work. Um, I would say the thing, but the thing it wasn't necessarily a rock bottom, but you know, maybe it, some people's view, but what happened is, um, one morning I woke up, it was, uh, 2009. I couldn't even tell you the date. Even if I tried, I couldn't even tell you the date. 2009, I woke up, I was living on my brother's floor at the time. My girlfriend, we broke up. Obviously she kicked me out. And, um, I was living at my buddy's place, his parents' place for a while in this spare bedroom. Then my brother, took me into his place, but he had a roommate. So I would sleep on the couch. But when he had people over, like I couldn't, I couldn't sleep on the couch. They'd be hanging out. I'd go in the bedroom. <clears throat> and, um, I was on methadone at this time too. I don't know if you're familiar with methadone. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on methadone at this time too. I was still dabbling here or there. I wasn't on the straight and narrow for the methadone program. I was actually working at a car dealership, selling cars, working for Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, Nissan. That's where I was working. <laughs> and, um, my brother had people over this one night. So he's like, yeah, you guys sleep in the bedroom and stuff, you know? And, um, nobody really wanted to hang out with me. It wasn't, you know, wasn't a cool kid. Right. Like everybody, you know, people knew of me, everybody in the town knew of me or, or, you know, knew who I was. And, um, not that they didn't like me or anything, or I wasn't a, a decent fella, but, just wasn't what they were interested in type deal. See, the guy, you know, sleeping in a bedroom. So I put on Dexter. I think that's what's called Dexter. The show was a popular show a while back. Yeah, I, I remember that, it. You remember that show? I used to fall asleep to that every night, you know, just to stop the thoughts of, you know, everything. And uh, I went to sleep on his bedroom floor one day and I kind of had like this ex- this experience. It was so it was, it was just really strange. You know, I just started to think like what my life was going to look like. I didn't want to live past 25. And I knew I wouldn't anyway. It wasn't going to be my choice. I just knew that the way I was headed, that just was, you know, very real for me. And I thought, you know, what if I give this a try? I had all the tools. I had a thousand hours of treatment. You know, I had doctors, therapists, a 12-step program, Celebrate Recovery, Smart Recovery, AA, NA. I mean, I had been to it all. I had done it all. I knew what I needed to do. I just, whatever... Doggone reason I couldn't do I couldn't do it, but mm. I sort of had the, uh, this this these fast thoughts of like Brad, you got to give this a try. What's the worst that can happen? I started thinking this. It was out of the blue. Your your life has come to this. You know, you're living on your brother's couch. You got to go and get methadone every morning at six a.m. You use your brother's car. He asks you for five dollars for gas money. You don't even have it. You know, like you, and that's all you had. This like. That was all I had for support was him. And I'm like, dude, if you burn this bridge, like literally, you know, the street's next. And where I lived, there were no shelters. There was no homeless supports. This was an uppity, uppity, um, you know, place. There was no homeless people around or, or anything like that, right? So, like, I don't know. I would have to go to the big city and I wouldn't have made it. But, yeah, it started, it started to be stopped. What if you give it a try? What if you just do something different? Look, if if – I heard it at a meeting one time. If it doesn't work, 
you know, we'll refund your entry fee or we'll refund your misery. I heard all this stuff mm-hmm. before and I said, well, give it a try. And if it doesn't work, you know, you can go back to living like this at any time. You can connect with these people again. And um, the next morning I woke up and I picked up the 3,000 pound phone and I called my grandparents. They're up in Canada. <laughs> and um, the only the only people who would give me a shot at this, my folks would have helped me, but they wouldn't have paid for me to go to treatment or anything because I was already the million dollar man. They were done paying mm. for stuff. Um, <clears throat> and I don't blame them at all. Um, I don't blame them at all. My grandparents, though, I hadn't talked with them in a couple years. And um, they drove right down, 65, probably 65, 60, 65. They drove right down the next day, 16 hours. And um, they picked me up. And we were down in South Florida at a detox, like, the next day or the day after. And um, I didn't get sober then either. But it was another stepping stone. Um you know, to the, on the right track. And then we, we came back and uh, the cops were looking for me. They would call me all the time. Oh, you have a, you have a, um, you have a package. You got to sign for this package. And I'm like, dude, trust me. Nobody's sending me packages. <laughs> <clears throat> nobody's sending me anything I need to sign for. Like I have no money to buy anything. I don't have internet on my phone, nothing. Um, so I knew something was up and my grandparents were like, something's up, you know, like you, you, they saw me, right. I was in rough shape, maybe 110 pounds. Um, I didn't do laundry. I didn't have a bed, you know, I had a pillow and a blanket and that was my life had come to And For me, it was normal. But I, when mm-hmm. I saw that, when, when they understood how I was living, I could see the look on their face to say, holy shit. And I'm like, what? They're like, this is bad. And I'm like, what do you mean, dude? This is great. We've got two bedroom. We got a pool right there at the apartment complex. We got a gym. Like, this is great. Um, but for an outside view, it was bad. Mm-hmm. And um, they came to my brother's apartment. I think we were back for about two days. You know, they said, well, talk to some of your friends. Say goodbye if you want. You know, and I'm thinking, I'm going through my phone. I'm like, fuck, I got two people to say goodbye to. That's it. And mm-hmm. they, they showed up the next day. And they were like, do you want to come back with us to Canada? I said, for what? I, I never, I haven't been there since I was seven. I don't have any friends. I don't have a job. I don't have anything. And they're like, well, you know, stay with us and we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. So I was like, all right, well, I just made this impulsive decision. I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm like, all right, let's do it. Hopped in the car and we're gone. And, um, yeah, so I, li- I lived up there for about eight, nine months. I still wasn't on the straight and narrow, but my goodness was I living better than I was. Um, the methadone to get out of my system took about six months. I was depressed, anxious. I lost, you know, some weight. Um, my schedule was out of whack. It was really, really a tough uphill battle um, to do that. But what really changed my life was uh, was on the January eleventh, twenty ten. I was going back to see everybody back home in North Carolina, my family, and I'd reconnected with the girl. And I was going back to see her. I was excited. And um, my brothers, like, you know, I was going to go back and, you know, have a visit, right? I, I was doing a painting job up here, and I squirreled away 500 bucks. It was huge for me, 500 bucks. Whoa. You know, I squirreled away 500 bucks. I got a plane ticket. I had, like, you know, 250, 300 bucks, and I was going to go and, 
you know, I was like excited for this. Like my life was like 10 X better than it was before. I'm like, this is going to be great. Again, uh, go through customs in Toronto. They're asking me 101 questions and they're really looking at me. Like I had this feeling, I said, something's up and I should have just grabbed my bags and maybe I should have just left. Maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know. I went through with it. They said, oh, the Brad, it's all mis- uh, big misunderstanding. We're going to get you right there to the flight. They searched my bags in this back room. They asked me for all this ID I had, you know, and everything. And then they ran, you know, brought me to the plane. Everything's good, man. Big misunderstanding, you know. I said, all right, cool. I uh, layover flight, so I drop in New York. I'm like, if something was going to happen, it would probably happen here in New York. Nothing happened. So I said, all right, well, I guess I'm going to Carolina. And uh, as soon as I got off the plane in Carolina, they had a sheet of paper. Bang, right there. Had my face on it. They were police officers. And mm. they, uh, they got arrested. Far out. What was going through your mind at that time? Um, I had taught with this one. <laughs> I had taught with this one um, person the whole way, and then we were the last two off the flight. I think they purposely put me at the back, so I'd be the last one off. Um, and I'm thinking, like, this person probably just thinks they just spent the entire flight talking to one of like the worst criminals in the world. I'm actually not. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Um, no, but something happened that day. You know, something happened that day. I got arrested. I got charged with three counts of drug trafficking, opium, pain pills, and cocaine. I sold drugs two years prior to an undercover police officer. It was a setup sting. Buddy of mine, Mm. you know, um, set me up for the deal. Not to blame him, you know. I mean, 100%, you know, my my fault. Um, You know, I did the deal. And um, they couldn't find me, though, because I had no car. I had no uh, phone, no, you know, no job, nothing, right? <laughs> Living there, you know. But um, I was actually pulled over one time, maybe two times, where they never checked for my ID. But if they did, those warrants would have been alive. And they never did. You know, everything, oh, wow. in this world happens, everything in this world happens for a reason. And you only know the reason when you look back. Hindsight's twenty twenty, And until then, it doesn't make any sense. But it, it, it at some point, it will. And um, – and it's not always a good point, but, you know, it's it's a weird, it's a strange thing. So I, they have those little roundabouts type deal at the airports. You would drive through, you're not allowed to park um, at the mm. air, in front of it. So they had the cop car out front parked there. They're allowed to park. They're searching me, and I see this ex-girlfriend of mine. I see her driving by in the car. I mean, just she just looks like a tourist, you know, just – Best day of her life, right? Just cruising and a big smile and just, you know, didn't see me though. And everything hit me at that point in time. Everything, I had this flashback of my life of where the choices I made, I let everybody else down. I let myself down. I just was like, you know, and then this poor girl is driving around here to pick me up and she ain't going to pick me up. And we talked afterwards too. She went, she couldn't find me. So she went into the airport and they were calling her name over the loudspeaker to come and get my suitcase. She didn't know what was going on. You know what I mean? I, like I'm pu- putting this stuff on other people. And mm. that's what I hated most about it. And um, I kind of decided that day, like enough of the bullshit, enough of, you know, letting everybody else down. 
Like letting yourself down. You got to like stop this stuff. It's not fair to everybody mm-hmm. else and for myself too. And um, yeah, so I ended up doing 12 months in jail um, for those charges. And since I was a Canadian citizen that just had a green card in the U.S., even though I lived in the U.S. 17 years, um, I went into deportation proceedings. So they were going to remove me. Um, from the United States, and I ended up getting a lifetime ban. So I woke up one morning. They don't tell you when, but I was downtown Atlanta in a jail, and they called my name. And um, this is twelve months later. U.S. Marshal or uh, immigration, ICE. They call them ICE, Immigration Enforcement. They put me in this unmarked van. They drive me right into the back of the Atlanta International Airport, right next to the airplane. I have no shoelaces. I have a box. I have a the clothes they gave me, a white T-shirt, little raggedy pair of shorts. And they kind of hand me over to this uh, flight attendant, and she was terrified as well. <laughs> you know, what the heck happened? And she's like, these guys are not leaving until that door closes. And I'm like, okay. But I was finally – it was finally over. Like it was finally over, and I came back here to Canada. I got sent on a flight. It was a one-way flight. It landed in Toronto. And um, things uh, – yeah, that's how it all kind of started. But I, you know, the thing, the jail thing there saved my life because that was, Mm. I was always trying to run from myself, run from my feelings, run from who I was. And once the door closes behind you, there's no running anymore. You got to deal with yourself. You got to figure out how to deal with yourself. And I figured out who I was. Yeah, as scary and as painful and as challenging as that experience would have been when you were saying, you know, Maybe I should have turned around at the airport. I think to myself, thank goodness that you didn't because who knows how that tape would have played had you gone straight back home and continued to use. But the way that your life unfolded, you know, getting arrested and having that moment, you know, I relate so much to that moment that you described in having that guilt and that shame for inconveniencing and putting that fear into your ex-girlfriend because for me it was the same thing. I didn't have enough self-respect to want to quit for myself. I was broken. I was a broken human being and and I was happy to continue killing myself slowly however long it took. But it was when I saw my mum's face when I got home one morning after a bender and I, and I saw the look in her face and just this complete she was brokenhearted. She didn't know what to do anymore. And and I, I thought to myself, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep hurting the people that I love. And I just think to myself, as you shared that, Brad, what a huge sliding doors moment that's been for you in your life. Yeah. And so you get back to Canada and you've got, I guess, a year sobriety up by this stage. How did you start life all over again? And how did you stay sober? Slowly. I slowly started things back over. I mean, I was so grateful, you know, obviously to not be in jail anymore, but to have a a clean slate to work from. You know, now I could kind of build my reputation because when I lived in a smaller town, you know, 30,000 people, it wasn't like it was the smallest, but I knew everybody and everybody knew me and it was hard to get away from, it would have been hard to get away from what was. So I was able to really start over and um, and craft this thing up with, with how I was now and not how I was before I set two goals Mm -hmm. when I was in jail. I wanted to get a German shepherd and I wanted to go to college and be an addiction counselor. So that's what I did. I got a German shepherd and I enrolled in school and I went to school 
graduated school, I started working at addiction treatment center, residential program here um, in Canada. And I worked there for six years and I, I worked my way up to a clinical caseworker where I'd work with youth between 14 and 19 every day. They lived in the, they lived at the facility for six months and I did that. That was, yeah, that was years. And then I, I quit working there and I started to do work as a peer support worker. I really liked that a lot better to meet people where they're at, to come from a different lens other than abstinence and, you know, just meet people. I, I really love that. So I, I kind of worked with the opening of these clinics called the Rapid Access Addiction Clinic. And there was a four-part team. We had a doctor on staff. We had me, a peer support worker. We had a counselor. And then we had um, like a secretary who would, you know, book clients in. So this was a clinic, though, where you could walk in at any time and we would give you services. So you could walk in and say, hey, I want to, you know, quit uh, doing heroin. I want to get on Suboxone. I want to get the, I want to get off pain pills. I want to get off drinking. And we would meet with people like they would meet with the doctor for an hour. I've never seen anything like it before. You meet with a doctor for an hour. That's, mm. and, um, and they can meet with me. So I really love that. Um, and then I did that part time, but after I quit at the treatment center, I, I, something changed in me. It was kind of weird. And I mean, this is like not really the, necessarily the addiction topic, but um, I didn't want to really work there anymore. A lot of people were dying and stuff, you know I mean? It was really hard. Um, these were young people too, um, 14, 15, 16 <clears throat> tragedies, very, very tragedies. People I worked with, you know, for six months and um, you know, I go for a coffee with them after a couple of years after they left and things seemed good. And then the next week you'd, you'd hear the news and it was just like, man, it was heavy, right? It, it was really heavy um, type work. I got burned out from it. I wasn't really enjoying it anymore. Wasn't, you know, I was having a hard time going to work. And um, my wife and I were having our first daughter. And I got this bright idea that I was going to quit my job. And I was going to start my own business. So my wife's pregnant, I don't know, nine months at this time. I have no money saved. I, I have no skills. I never took a business course in my life. Um, I never passed the test. We went over that. When I got to college, I did okay, but some would argue. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had no idea. But I just knew, you know, I kind of got the same sort of thing where I got my – to a spot in my addiction where I just knew if I had – if I kept – if I kept going down this path, I was just miserable. And I wanted to change something. And that's kind of where I decided to start my own business. And that's been about five or six years now. And that's what I do, you know, every single day. And I've been, mm -hmm. you know, uh, very lucky with the opportunities that I've been given for, you know, for, for me, for a guy like me, I'm lucky to be alive for one. And, um, you know, just to build relationships with people to me is everything. That's, you know, another found, that's another pillar of the foundation for, for sobriety. And, um, yeah, so, and then, you know, I just keep that rocking and then I have three kids mm. now. I mean, figure that out. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. So when you decided to start your own business, did you have sober motivation as an idea in your mind or was there something that inspired you to start the account? Because you've created like a cult following now. It's incredible. Yeah, so we have about 800,000 people total, Facebook and um, and Instagram, you know, and these are incredible humans. Um, and I never had a vision for this. This was never the plan or the play. 
I started Sober Motivation, the name. I got the name because I'm like, that sounded cool. And I got the name and nothing happened for Sober Motivation until I got a, a message one day or an email. I can't remember exactly. It was from Good Morning America. And they said, we want to do a story. And we, I had a little bit of posts and a little bit of stuff on there, but it was nothing like what you see now. And um, they said, we want to do a story. A story. Nobody wants to hear my story. So hopefully it's somebody else's. I'll connect you with them. They said, no, we want to do a mix. We want to hear, you know, what this is all about. And this is at a time on Instagram. There was me, there was Sober Revolution, and there were maybe two other accounts. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't booming. It wasn't the buzz, you know? So yeah, that, and, and once they aired the story, that's when, that's when things picked up and people started paying attention and people wanted to share their story. And the whole idea mm -hmm. behind the story, I kind of had two ideas behind the story. I wanted people to not feel alone on their journey if they were starting like I did. And I wanted people who were on the journey to be celebrated like we celebrate everything else. Birthdays, accomplishments, mm -hmm. school, everything else everybody does, we celebrate on social media. So I said, well, these people save their own lives. We need to celebrate yeah. them and, and show them. You know, the people care and um, we've done just that slowly, but surely. It's an incredible page and an amazing platform. And I discovered it really early on in my own sobriety journey. And it did, it kept me motivated and seeing other people's stories. And like you said, celebrating those milestones, you know, I had Jill Teets on my podcast a little while back now, and we were having this conversation around how milestones can be a really tricky time because often it's this huge thing. Like you just said, you saved your own life, but if people don't understand sobriety or addiction, they don't quite get it and they don't quite understand the magnitude of it. And so to be able to have that celebrated and recognized by fellow sober peers is, is really, really powerful. Yeah, no, it is true. And it, right now that we're talking, there's a story I shared like last week. It, it's going to go over a million people. It's going to reach over a million. It's around 950 right now. You know, and the bigger part of that is this is letting people know what's possible for people who are struggling mm -hmm. or people who, you know, a lot of people follow too who are just supporting of people doing better in their life. It's, it's incredible. Family members, you know, all mm -hmm. type of stuff. So. You know, my big mission is just to like normalize this stuff. Like this is just something that, you know, it's not right now. It will be though. It will be. This will just be if you're like, hey, I'm sober, you know, out of 10 people, five are going to be like, yeah, me too. And it'll be like, yeah, cool. Yeah. Like life goes on. Like, let's do this. This is cool. We can do this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think we share a really, really similar passion and a similar mission to remove this stigma. And the only way we can do that is by sharing our stories and having these conversations and talking publicly and openly rather than what we've been told to do in the past, which is to remain anonymous, stay quiet. This is, it's a shameful thing that you've done. It's a moral reflection. It's none of those things. It's got nothing to do with your morals or your values or your your worthiness as a human being. I think addiction is is a really powerful disease that takes a hold of people and the fact that you can be free of that and come out the other side is 
is really powerful. And like you said, more and more people I think will identify with this over time. Brad, what keeps you motivated today then? Oh yeah, I got my picture here. I'll show you. This is my motivation picture. I don't know if you guys can see it here. That's it. So you got a picture here of um, one guy gives up, one guy keeps going. Neither of them can see how close they are to getting the diamonds. In this picture, it's diamonds. But he's so close. And it's just mm. what kind of the mindset, you know, that kind of keeps me motivated. You know, whether I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I have no idea. You know, but I'm gonna win. I'm gonna win today, and I'll figure out tomorrow when it comes. You know, but throughout, you know, my sobriety journey, my business journey, my father journey. Yeah, you know, I just put one foot in front of the other, and just do the best mm-hmm. I can. I, I I live too long, trying to be perfect, trying to have all the answers. You know, I don't have any answer. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about sobriety or recovery or business or life. I'm always learning every day. And I surround myself with good people, people who are willing to help people who are sober and people who aren't sober that are just good people. Um, and my family too, you know, I mean, it, it's a hard thing to do, you know, for, for me anyway. Um, it, it's mm-hmm. a challenge, but you know, it keeps me going. And I just, I don't have today one lick of desire to go back to living on somebody's floor in their bedroom. And I keep that mm-hmm. I keep that close. I keep the mug shots close. I keep that reality close because that's where I go with it. I hear like I mentioned before, I hear some people share their story like it was fun and stuff and I'm like, you know, I stopped having fun after that box of pills was gone. And and, and, I, and my legs mm-hmm. were just shaking nonstop and I you know, I felt like I had the flu times a thousand and I couldn't get out of bed and I was you know, sick as a dog. And I had, you know, I couldn't afford to take the pain away. You know, I keep all mm-hmm. that stuff of what it was like to come from where I came from. I'm motivated by just waking up. That's all it takes mm-hmm. for me. That's it. That's all I need. Mm. It's so powerful to be able to bring that recall to the front of your mind and play the tape forward when you do start thinking about ever going back to that life. And I think for somebody that's listening, whether you're in early recovery or you've got an extended length of time up, that's still such a powerful tool to have because I know for me personally, the further away I get from my last drink, my mind can sometimes start to fall back into the delusion of remembering only the good times or like you just said, you know, when people say that, oh, I used to have fun when I was drinking you know, you can start to lie to yourself and you can start to believe that maybe things weren't that bad, but the actual reality is there's a reason why you stopped in the first place. So if you can just take yourself back to those weeks, months, years leading up to that point where you decided to quit and hold on to that and remember that, then it can be that motivation that you need on those days that things are getting really tough or, you know, you want that instant gratification like we spoke about at the top of the show. And for somebody who is stuck in that temptation to relapse or they're in a pre-contemplation about giving up in the first place, do you have any tips or tools or things that you implement in your life daily that help you to maintain your recovery? Yeah. On the motivation thing too, I, I heard this a while back, you can't stay clean on yesterday's shower. 
Mm-hmm. You got to keep working at this stuff every day. If you get to a place where you, where you're complacent, it could be a slippery slope. Maybe you'll sail off into the sunset and leave this behind, but that doesn't happen too often. For me, I stay mm-hmm. connected to people, good people who want to see me do well. I stay connected to my purpose. You know, I stay connected. I, I get really involved with recovery. I host peer support recovery groups in the Sober Buddy app three times a week. I try to help people, you know, every second I get. I get hundreds of messages every day, and I, I try to do the best I can to help people and stay connected with people. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy doing the podcasting. Um, it's become like this, uh, I don't know, obsession, you could call it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I'm really enjoying that. And I think just being honest with where I'm at, you know, my struggle today is not with, you know, picking up. That's not my struggle. My struggle today and will always be my struggle is myself, how I think about mm. myself, how I feel about myself. Am I taking care of myself? Am I beating myself up because I came up short? Or how am I dealing with it when I do come up short? How am I going to deal with it when things don't go well with the business, with the relationships? with anything in life, how do I deal with that stuff? That, because that, if I don't deal with that stuff, then the other stuff comes next, you know, but the relapse for me, there's stuff that happens before. I don't just wake up one day and I'm like, bing, bang, boom, I'm throwing it out the window. It will have been um, a staircase with a bunch of steps on the way down. That's what I keep an eye on. And be Mm -hmm. honest with yourself. Like, there's nothing wrong if you want to go back and it doesn't mean your recovery is any worse than anybody else's because you're thinking you want to drink or do drugs. It doesn't mean it's any worse. You know, be honest with people. Tell on yourself. Hey, I'm really struggling. Mm. Have people around you. Be vulnerable. You know, just you get one life. You know, just live it. It's no life. Drinking all the time. Doing drugs. You know, I always feared that I would look back. You know, some people say you... I don't know exactly where this is from, but you'll meet somebody when you when you die and they'll show you what the life you lived and they'll show you what you were supposed to live and they'll show you when you could have pivoted each time. And I don't want that to happen. And if it does happen and I got off track, I want to say, you know what? Maybe I got off track, but I'm happy with the road I took because I couldn't have been happy with the other way. Yeah. It's played out exactly the way it should. And, you know, that just reminded me of this thought I had. I'm yet to meet anybody in recovery who regrets getting sober. Yeah, so true. (laughs) Brad, there's one final question that I have that I love to ask all of my guests who join me here on the show. Now, that question is, what are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live a life today that is happy, joyous and free? Let me see. I wrote these down because I was like, I won't remember these on the spot. Well, oh, yeah, okay. I wrote it while I was on the treadmill, so reading it is a whole nother thing. <laughs> the, the You know, I keep my circle small. That's one thing I do because I was the popular guy. I was the big guy that run around with everybody and was friends with everybody, and, it, you know, I hated myself. I, I run on the philosophy of four quarters is better than a hundred pennies, you know, so I keep my circle slim and, um, you know, I mean, it's big, but it's slim. I don't need to be everybody's best friend. I don't need to be every, I don't need to be like that with everybody because I find that 
I spread myself too thin and then I'm actually not very good for a lot of people. I'd rather be really good for a handful of people and we help each other out and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, big thing for me is just excuses, you know, not making excuses for um, things, but be always be willing to learn. Always be willing to learn from falling short or, or you know, not getting something the way you wanted it, but be willing to learn, not beat yourself up, be gentle. But, you know, leave that in there to learn. And that was actually the third one I had too, would just be gentle, you know, being, being a father, three kids, being a husband, you know, being all this stuff. Um, I see other people do it and I'm like, I don't know, like, are they just putting on a really good show or what am I doing? You know, what am I doing wrong here? It's really hard. Um, it's really, really hard. And I just, uh, I get it wrong sometimes, but I just kind of step back and I'm just like, you know what? Like, let it's okay to get it wrong. Let's just uh, let's just work on it, you know, in, in a kind way. Because I was just hard on myself and just put myself down for too long. Well, I don't want to play that game anymore. So uh, those are my three. They are really, really beautiful words to end on. Brad, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to not only join me here today, but for everything you do for the sober community. I thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 